I was deciding whether to leave the NYPD or not, and I felt like my power came from being like an NYPD cop who'd been out on the street. And I said, well, if I leave and go to be a chief of police in another city like Burlington, am I going to lose Samson's hair? Like, is it going to take away my mojo? And this guy who was a, a screenwriter said, Brandon, what you did made you, and you can take it with you for the rest of your life. And no one's going to look back and say, you were an NYPD cop for 19 years, but not 21. And you were a street cop for five years, but not seven. He goes, that's you. You're not going to be made anew from another three years of the NYPD. Just do what's interesting. Deciding on a clear-headed walk to the mailbox that he needed to devote himself to service, at least in the short term, Brandon Del Pozo, Dartmouth 96, traded his musings in the academy as a philosopher for a seat at the police academy. Over two decades later, he has experience thinking deeply and acting decisively for systems-based reforms on everything from anti-terrorism to technology to public health. Find out how sometimes marrying the philosophical and the practical can be of real and deep consequence for the well-being of others on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with my friend Brandon Del Pozo, and we are going to talk about justice and paths to thinking deeply about things that really matter to all of us and how someone really with service deep within him has spent the last 25 years of our lives. And I'm just so happy that you're here to talk to us today. Thanks so much, Brandon. I'm so happy to be here. When you say 25 years since graduation, it's my heart skips a beat in a few ways, but here we are. Exactly. So I know who you are now, but I tend to ask this of our guests. When you were leaving college, who were you and who did you think you were going to become? Hey, that's a that's such a, a thoughtful question. Um, so I was this kid who went to Dartmouth as the first person in my family to go to college. And I was from New York City. Or I grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s, 80s, and then early 90s. And so Dartmouth was an escape for me. It was not only something that made my family proud, because the goal my mom said when I was young was just to, to get a college degree. And she thought I'd go to like a local city school. And I ended up going to this fantastic college that really changed the course of my life. But also I got to go to a place in New Hampshire where I didn't have to lock the door at night if I didn't want to, where, you know, I mean, listen, crime was out of control in New York at, at that time. And just going to Stuyvesant High School, and I was a math and science nerd, and I was commuting from Brooklyn to Stuyvesant. A lot of listeners will know exactly what kind of school I'm talking about. Took an hour on the train. I saw people get stabbed. I was robbed. Um, I saw fights all the time. And I also knew kids that were just as smart as me who'd gotten into Stuyvesant from Brooklyn. And their parents would not let them go to school at Stuyvesant because it was just too dangerous to commute. And the idea that somebody's opportunities were truncated that way because in New York City, like, really left a lasting impression on me. So I was just sort of, like, disoriented Brooklyn kid who was like, I love the outdoors, but I've never done that much hiking. I was this disoriented, idealistic kid who wanted to be of service, serve in uniform, make a difference, and also write about it, to be honest. And, and that's kind of who I was. And, and I transitioned from, like, math and science to philosophy while I was at Dartmouth. And so by senior year, I was this philosophy major who had a really disorienting quasi-wilderness experience in New Hampshire, who wanted to figure out where to go next as I was headed back towards New York City. And I think if I'd asked people our senior year, who's that Del Pozo guy? They would have said, oh, well, I see him in his fatigues. I think he's ROTC and he's really smart and thoughtful. And I do remember a few years later when everyone heard he's become a cop, that everyone went, 
Oh, interesting. So, so help me, help me fill in that, that period. How did that um, happen? Well, for the folks who thought I was smart, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm glad the appearances had the intended effect. So my, my grandfather was a paratrooper in World War II on my mother's side of the family. He was in the 82nd Airborne. I was always so proud of that. There was a bit of anti-Semitism growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in just because it was like this very sort of old school Italian neighborhood. And I was this Jewish kid. And I don't, I don't hold grudges against the kids, but I think that my grandfather fighting the Nazis and standing up for something like that really resonated with me as a young kid growing up Jewish in Brooklyn. And then my dad on the other side of the family was a combat medic during Vietnam. He, he wasn't even a citizen when he was drafted. He ended up just barely learning English. He was a day laborer in Miami. And then he got drafted into the army and went. I mean, he had no, he was just glad to be in America. He's immigrated from Cuba. And so for me, the fatigues were like that family lineage of like just feeling like there was a lot of value and service and kind of living up to the, what I thought were the, I exalted my father and, and grandfather's military service and I wanted to do it. And they both said to me, don't do it. But we appreciate that it pays for college. Thank you. That's super helpful. And if you're going to do it, become an officer. And so I kind of split the baby by going into the infantry and the National Guard. So anyway, that's the fatigues, right? But I remember, I remember this moment. It's become this thing I think about again and again, where I'm walking southbound on the green towards the hop. I'm about to get my mail. I'm going to go to the, the mailboxes. Hinman boxes. Hinman box, yeah. 1172. Saying, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I'm a philosophy major who really enjoys writing and tackling moral issues, ethical issues, but what, likes practice too. And, and New York City was in the middle of reversing its, its crime wave. You know, we could talk about what that means now and how we're reckoning with it, but but there was a really aggressive police department that was going into the most dangerous cities and, and neighborhoods in the city and making them safer, right? And I mean, like, you know, black and brown neighborhoods where I had a friend in junior high school who he couldn't come to my house because he was black and his parents were worried about him getting beaten up by kids in my neighborhood for being black. And that was true. It happened. Yusuf Hawkins was, was shot and killed coming to look at a used car in my neighborhood. And then my parents wouldn't let me go to his house in Flatbush because a lot of people were getting shot and people were getting, it was not this like irrational fear on either part. That was changing in New York, right? It, it led to gentrification. But the point is neighborhoods like East Flatbush, Flatbush, Crown Heights, East New York, Brownsville, the Bronx were being made much safer by the NYPD in a really palpable way. And as I'm walking towards the Hinman boxes, wondering what the heck I'm going to do with my life, I said, you know what? I think I'll join the NYPD. I'll do it really? for a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was the moment. And so I called up my dad and said, when's the next police test? And he's like, coincidentally, it's two days after you graduate. I said, sign me up, dad. And I thought I would do it and then very respectably go to law school or something, right? But I ended up making it a career. Wow. I really thought there was some period of time there and it was soul searching across the green. That's amazing. Right. It was this moment where I said I can be part of this enterprise that what drove me to New Hampshire instead of like, you know, UPenn or Columbia or something was uh, needing to get out of New York City for four years and feel like that was safe in a, in, a, in a whole new experience. Never forget the bus that brought me to Hanover for the first time after I'd been accepted. And I just saw the, the green and the, mm -hmm. and, the, and, the, and the Baker Tower. I just said, this is such a different place for me. Yeah. And then New York was kind of reclaiming itself at that point with policing in some ways. And I wanted to, I just, there was this moment where it made sense to become a cop and I, I, I did it. Wow. And spent two decades there. Yeah. I spent almost like, 19 years in the NYPD and then four years as the chief of Burlington. And not yeah. 
just when you were in New York, not just during this era of aggressive policing and getting things safer, but we had this little thing called 9-11. Yeah. And there you were. So tell me tell me a bit about being a young officer. In yeah, I was still a rookie. I, I guess I have four years on patrol um, in Brooklyn when 9-11 happened. I was with my radio car partner, Kevin. We were these patrol cops in a police car in East Flatbush, like, you know, calling, going to 911 calls, looking for crime and trying to keep criminals on their toes, make this make the community safer. And, and East Flatbush was, was a really, at the time, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty violent neighborhood. And I felt like it was the closest high crime neighborhood that I could bicycle to. And, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, you'd see, like, I'd watch people get off the train and walk to their homes on a Friday night and see me standing there on foot. And they, they would smile and nod. These are, these are you know, um, African-American neighbors of ours. And I could tell they were like, well, as long as this guy's on the corner, we're going to get home safe with our, our paycheck in our pocket to our families. And that mattered to me. So the 9-11 happens and they were calling in cops from all over the city. And so my partner and I were actually bringing back breakfast that morning to the, the bosses in the, in the precinct. And we said, you know, when we bring back breakfast... They're going to just tell us, thanks for the breakfast, go to Ground Zero. It wasn't Ground Zero then. We thought it was an airplane accident. We thought that our very selfishly, our entire day as street cops was going to be derailed by like doing traffic control for an airplane accident. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to go on patrol and then go study for the promotional exam to become a sergeant. And then we were like, yeah, but if we bring back these sandwiches cold, these egg sandwiches, we're going to be in even bigger trouble with the bosses. So we're like, we kind of very nonchalantly tried to put the breakfast on the desk at the station house and walk away and say, hey, Del Pozo, Burke, get in the van. You're going to, you're going to the World Trade Center. But by then, um, as we were getting in the van, the second plane hit. So we knew now it was like not traffic control. It was something we needed to respond to. And when we got out of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the towers were to our right. If our boss made a right, we just would have gone out of, just as cops, we would have gotten out of the van and, and, and gone into the towers and, and who knows what would have happened. But he made a left because the place where you got your assignments was to the left. And we were telling, go to the right. Like, people need our help. They're jumping. And, and he's like, no, we're going to go get our assignments. That that made a huge, huge, huge difference in my life. The assignment that we got was to um, to shut down and evacuate the stock exchange, which oh. was not being in the towers. That made all the difference uh, in, you know, in yeah. our fate. Yeah. And because just a street, I'm telling you, a street cops who just would have gone into the towers. Everybody who was just there did. So as the first tower fell, I remember running for my life, not understanding. I thought maybe the top had fallen off. I thought maybe a jet plane was coming. But then the, the, the debris started falling and the smoke started closing in. And I'd been in fires before. So I knew, I said, if this, if this smoke is anything like the fires I've been in, like I'm going to die. And as it closed in, I went into the south entrance of the stock exchange and there was this really surreal image of the tv was still on and you could see news footage live news footage from new jersey filming downtown manhattan so i had this really weird meta experience of being in the middle of all that but watching it from a tv camera from jersey and i couldn't quite process for a bit that like one of the towers was gone that there was the whole south end of manhattan was covered in smoke like a huge cloud of dust. There was only one tower left, and it occurred to me that what I had run from was the collapse of the tower. And there were people crying. There were people who literally had wet themselves, you know. And so I um, I called up my wife from the touch-tone phone on the security desk at the south entrance of the stock exchange, and I said, do you see what's going on? And she said, yeah. I said, and I called my mom, too. I said, I'm in that cloud right now. So um, I wish me luck. And, uh, yeah, 
I stood on a folding chair in front of the people at the floor of the stock exchange and said, like, I'm Officer Del Pozo from the 6-7 precinct. He's Flatbush. We're going to shut down the exchange. Here's how it's going to happen. And um, I remember there was this very patrician guy. Like, in my mind, he was like this archetypal Dartmouth grad who went into finance. He had this great gray suit. He had white hair. He had blue eyes. He had a dark blue tie. And some people in the back were, like, mumbling. And he said um, to them, shut up. This officer's talking. We're going to listen and do what he says. And I was like, you know what, like uh, 27, 26 years old, 27 maybe. It occurred to me, like I was 27 years old and I had like standing on a metal folding chair and I had this job that in a crisis people really relied on to lead them to safety. And that, that was one of the moments in my life where I realized no matter what people think of the police in moments of crisis, we're the ones who get called and sort of, and we're the ones who get called, no one else is coming. And what we do matters. And I, I you know, I, I helped evacuate the stock exchange and, and the rest of it. I don't mean to say it's history, but the, the you know, the rest is, is 9-11, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So you continued with it. And actually, the aftermath of 9-11 was this kind of whole global terror enterprise. Yeah, right, right. So the New York City Police Department was not thrilled at being taken by surprise on 9-11. The idea of airplanes raining down from the sky was terrifying to a police department that took pride in being able to handle almost anything. But that just went beyond everyone's imagination. And they realized it exposed really critical gaps in how uh, the federal government analyzed and processed like municipal terrorism threats, like intelligence wise. So what Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg and Commissioner Kelly did was really create this like freestanding counterterrorism and intelligence program. And they hired, like, for example, David Cohen. He was the directorate of operations at the CIA. He'd since gone out of government work to work for travelers doing risk work. But brought him right back in and said, we want you to create an apparatus that, like, helps New York keep abreast of the threats that it faces. And so they started deploying officers overseas. I was working in this weird policy job because the NYPD had given me the gift of sending me to Harvard to get a Master of Public Administration degree. So I I did that at the Kennedy School. I was a 9-11 public service fellow. But then when I got out, I owed them policy work, which is like sort of not very thrilling. It was a deal with the devil, like a Faustian <laughs> deal. But I said, what the heck can get me out of here? And when they advertised the need for overseas intelligence officers, I was like, that if I get picked for that, that has enough juice to get me out of the policy obligation that I got for going to Harvard. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm never going to get Jordan because I'm Jewish and I don't speak Arabic and, and maybe I'll get like London. When I went through the interview process, I got a call from someone in the police commissioner's office. Hey, we want you to go to Jordan. I was like, what the, don't you guys know? I'm like, I'm just like Jewish dude in like a Muslim country at the height of an insurgency over in Iraq. They were like, yeah. So um, I took a crash course in Arabic in, at Berlitz and I ended up doing intelligence work at, based out of Amman for two years that took me to not only all over the Middle East, but also uh, India, because India suffered from a lot of terrorism in, in Bombay, especially in we worried that what worked in Mumbai for terrorism could easily be executed in New York. And the political threat was different. That was Lashkar-e Taiba and the threat out of Pakistan, but the mechanisms of attacking a city and its hotels and its commuter rails, you know, terrorists don't demure from an attack because someone they ideologically don't care about did it. Right? Like, oh, I will, I'm, Al-Qaeda is not going to do what Pakistan does. No, if it works, it works. It, it if it exposes a perversity of imagination that, that like creates a threat, they'll do it. So we were watching very closely the threats that unfolded in, in Mumbai, the hotel attacks, the rail attacks, the attacks on Jewish cultural centers that we worried could very easily be replicated in New York. And one of the things I was very proud to do was go to India and really learn those attacks inside and out on the mm-hmm. ground, what really made them work. 
and use that to inform how New York City could secure its hotels and its commuter rail and all of that. Like that was very, frankly, very rewarding work that came of 9-11 and came of my deployment to the Middle East. Yeah. And allowed you to think about not only strategies for mitigating risk, but also how you need to be building on policy and all of those things and not just be doing the daily out in the community. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, there's so many, you know, one of the problems I have, I love the big meta issues. I love the big policy issues. And then I'm fascinated by how they boil down in terms of translation and implementation to like, what does a cop do today on the street? Right. Or what does a, a social worker or a behavioral health interventionist do today? Like, I, I love like getting to that position and looking up and seeing what's at work up there, like 10,000 feet above them in the, in, in the strategy level that like resulted in that. A lot of times there's just tremendous dysfunction and it's all disjointed, right? That's, I'm not gonna lie, but, but it always fascinated me. And so I've been so lucky to be able to work at these different levels. Right. But it's interesting because earlier you said, you know, oh, I had to put in these policy years as kind of penance for my masters, meaning you really did love the community building aspect and and being that helper on the ground so oh my god the best stuff i could just say in some ways it's just a constant tension i was this philosopher who loves pushing a sector car around east flatbush i remember i was at this paris review issue launch party talking to like you know all these super interesting writers but i was deciding whether to leave the nypd or not and i felt like not just cops are like this, but a lot of people are like, but I felt like like the NYPD was Samson's hair. Like my power came from being like an NYPD cop who'd been out on the street, who knew how to push a sector car, who could respond to any type of street crime. I'd commanded two precincts where I'd responded to crazy incidents of all sorts of human suffering. And I said, well, if I leave and go to be a chief of police in another city like Burlington, am I going to lose Samson's hair? Like, is it going to take away my mojo? And this guy who was a, a screenwriter said, Brandon, what you did made you, and you can take it with you for the rest of your life. And no one's going to look back and say, you were an NYPD cop for 19 years, but not 21. And you were a street cop for five years, but not seven. He goes, that's you. You're, you're at that point, you're like, you're in your late 30s. You're not going to be made anew from another three years of the NYPD. Just do what's interesting. And I, I always try to keep that in mind now, right? That like, you may love the street work you did in, in, in your 20s, but it's never coming back again. And the responsible thing to do is use your skills to to take it to the next level. And that's often a strategic level. Yeah, I love that. Because you do take those experiences with you. And so often we are the ones in our heads saying, but I will never get that again. But but you have right. it, you know, it's part, I love that, I love that. So you did actually make that decision to not just jump localities, but to become the chief. You were the chief of police yeah. in Burlington, Vermont. A professor friend of mine asked me to give her some career advice because he was a cop for a few years. And I said, why did you stop being a cop? And he said, um, well, I stopped being a cop because I had this calling to be out there and do street level police work. And I did it for a few years and I got it out of my system. And now I want to focus on other things. And that that was a moment for me that made me realize my, my calling, you know, if you're entitled to have one and you don't want to over dramatize it was sort of to be a leader. Like I love being a sergeant of police. I love commanding police precincts. I commanded a precinct in the Bronx. I commanded the West Village precinct. And so the thing is, like, policing is such a bureaucratic thing that it takes so many years to get to those positions of responsibility. So my calling, if I'm being honest with myself, I love the street work. But even then, I was trying, oh, can I improve this or be a leader or give other cops advice? Like, you know, 
it just took a long time to get to the point where I could fulfill my calling of being a leader, being a priest and commander. And then finally, after 19 years of it, I said, you know, Burlington is a really progressive city that's really looking for reform. And I love the outdoors. I love the experience that Dartmouth gave me of being up in New England. It seemed like the sweet spot for um, being a chief of police. And I would check the chief of police want ads because they have these like want ads for chiefs. Uh, <laughs> serious. It's the classifieds. And one day Burlington came up. It was like March of 2015 when I saw the want ad. I kicked my friend out of my office, called my wife, Sarah, and I said, I'm going to apply to be the chief of Burlington. She's like, yeah, whatever. And sure enough, by like September 1st of 2015, I was the chief of police there, which was another whole like really topsy-turvy crazy experience that I'm glad I did with it. You know, um, I'm also, frankly, right now, like I'm, I'm glad to be in a different place. Yeah. So yeah. with that recognition of the calling being leadership, I, I, I'm sure that is the case. And I'm sure you're an excellent leader. But I think another piece of that is is really the critical thinking frankly, that I'm sure your education has helped give you as well as those hours on the street to say, yeah, we're doing okay, but we could do better in so many different areas. So the reform really, even before you became chief, had had been something that you were getting called upon to kind of lean into in, in lots yeah. of areas. So can you talk about a bit about that? Right. I mean, if you could sort of go back to the intelligence, you know, that was a reform effort to, to not make the mistakes that led to 9-11. But then, you know, even as a precinct commander, like I was looking at the systems my cops were working on there. I was like, honestly, why are we making the marijuana arrests we're making? I ended up being a um, sort of a source for Elsa Chang, who's now a host on All Things Considered for NPR. We became friends after I became a source for her exposing like some of the troubling practices and marijuana arrests that the New York City Police Department was making. So I had this tension where, like, just as, as a functionary, even a high-level functionary in, like, a 50,000-person police department, I was, like, a puppy in some ways. I have an idea. I have an idea. I want to, you know, and, and sometimes I'd get purchase. Other times you'd be like, yeah, inspector, just just do your job of running the precinct. Like, it's been working this way for years or decades. Like, don't rock the boat. And so, you know, I, I did strategic planning work for the NYPD towards the end of my career. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why Apple has something called activation lock, which is when you get a phone, you can opt into activation lock, where if your phone gets stolen, it can't get reset without a username and password. That was sort of to like thwart the black market for stolen phones. Like that was me dealing with stolen phones in the West Village constantly. Like the, if you want to know who can lose a phone faster than anyone, it's like a, frankly, like a resident of the West Village. They, they were... <laughs> great it can be they were totally convinced that like it's the west village this is where sex in the city was filmed like how could anything bad happen here <laughs> um and i'm like no you will put your phone down and it will be gone and it was and i was under tremendous pressure to solve that problem and i said this problem needs to be solved by changing the way the phones are made because you, you they're so easy to repurpose so like i started talking with and eric schneiderman was the state attorney general at the time and, and no matter what happened to him at the end like he actually took an interest in getting Apple to stop the way phones were so appealing to the black market as a matter of consumer protection. Like that was something I actually never told the NYPD I was involved in that because I think they would have just killed me because it's out of my zone. Okay. But that was sort of like what I was thinking. I mean, that was where my thinking was. And so I guess to bring it back around, being a chief of police was this opportunity in a reform minded city. It was an opportunity to not have to be in the closet about that. You could just be a reformer. And I had mixed results. I mean, it's, we're seeing it today. Like, Liberal cities are canvases for reform, but their politics is not right now where it needs to be to, to, in, in policing, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, but I think it's a double-edged sword to, to be the chief of police in a very liberal city. Yeah, but there are also, there were 
real issues that you were having to think deeply about reform because we hadn't seen some of them before, like the whole opioid addiction issue. Right, right. The opioid crisis is, you know, like people who do tobacco regulatory science will will retort and say, oh, you know, tobacco contributes to the death of 480,000 people a year. That's the real threat. But I'll argue back by saying it's true that like lung cancer, throat cancer, emphysema, all of that like does shorten lives. But in this way that we've done a really good job of systematizing and dealing with, like by the time you suffer the distal effects of, of smoking, you, you've lived a life that could have been fairly productive, probably was, lived according to your interests. You're older, you've had children, and then there's a whole system by which to a palliative care and treatment to deal with it. Opioid crisis overdose kills 50 to 70,000 people a year, but does so in this like very proximate, disruptive way. Like a parent comes home and their kid is dead or a husband comes home and, and the wife is cold in bed. I mean, like think of Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was a West Village resident. I met like he, one day they just find him dead. Like, like that, that is a whole different type of disruption that doesn't just happen to the stars, right? It happens to, to 70,000 Americans every which way a year and really in the prime of their lives or in their youth. And so, you know, in Vermont, it's all a matter of scale, but it was by far the number one killer of people. The only thing that killed more people, frankly, in Vermont was old age. I mean, mm. And so when, when I got there, um, the mayor was like, listen, we need a public health response to the opioid crisis, but our city doesn't have a Department of Health. I don't want a police response, but I know you're like this guy who chomps at the bit to do projects. Could you please go ahead and take it up? And it had a it had a huge effect on my life to be be asked to lead the opioid crisis response in Burlington. It opened my eyes to public health and and so many other things in so many ways. But the end result is that the reforms we did they in 2018 resulted in a 50 percent decrease in fatal overdoses. It's amazing. So the rest of the state, the rest of Vermont, had a 20 percent increase year over year. And we had a 50% decrease and it was just relentlessly following the science and telling bureaucracies and institutions like, this is a crisis, get off your butt. I don't care what the, uh, um, the systems you have in place make you accustomed to. If you do these things, if we all, the researchers hated it because we were doing so many things at once that you couldn't like do controlled experiments. We we're doing this like really messy observational natural experiment, mm-hmm. but we did like seven, eight, nine things that were science-based that came together all at once to really have a lasting effect on reducing fatal overdoses. And it was statistically significant. No matter how you cut it, the chance that it was due to chance was like 1%. Or li- literally, it was one in a thousand that what we did was due Right. To and with that kind of impact, researchers be damned because, okay, fine. If it takes nine different things, do all those nine things and you get a 50% reduction, I'm okay with that, right? <laughs> well, I gave them a consolation prize. I said, your research is why I'm doing yeah. these, these, these interventions. Like your science, your meticulous science about partial agonist medications and access to treatment and wait lists and how highly structured treatment should be and where people can go to get it. All of that that you've done is what gives me the confidence to do these nine things at once. I'm sorry that you can't evaluate them all at once. Exactly. Yeah. But you know a bit about evaluation now and, and study and deep thinking because you are now Dr. Del Pozo. Tell me about going back for a PhD. Hey, listen, so my grandmother is up in heaven saying he's not Dr. Del Pozo because he's not an okay. MD. I wish he was an MD. <laughs> right, right. So, so you and I, right, Leslie, we're both doctors. <laughs> we're doctors, Dr. Leslie and Dr. Brandon, because I, I was always a nerd. So from 1999 on, I was in graduate school. I got a master's in criminal justice from John Jay College. I got a master's in public administration. I mentioned 
But like, I realized to return to my roots, I wanted to get a PhD in philosophy, and I love political philosophy and ethics. So I, I went down that road. God, I mean, I'm embarrassed, but you can just look it up on my CV. It took me like 13 years, basically, to get that PhD. You were busy. So in January, I got my PhD in political philosophy, and I wrote about the commitments of the police in the democratic state. What does it mean to police a democracy? How can police be a positive, affirming force in a democracy? How can policing, if, if done well, actually protect minority interests against the imperfections of majoritarian rule and a populist focus in democracy? And so when I did that, and I felt like I answered that question to my satisfaction. It took a long time to do it, but it really helped provide me with a compass for policing. But what it also did, as I worked through those problems, it really showed me anyway that like policing isn't about law enforcement. It's about, it sounds cheap to say, but life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That policing should affirm people's pluralist conceptions of the good, just to nerd out a little bit. It, sh it should affirm people's ability to, to thrive. It should align with the goals of public health and policing should, should, should it just be about how many arrests you make or how much drugs you seize, or how many guns you take off the street. But are people and communities leading longer, healthier lives because we've made them feel safe and we've allowed them to pursue their goals? And what that does is aligns policing with public health. And then the very next step is it necessarily aligns policing with behavioral science. So always straddling that gap between theory and practice, it kind of like very ingloriously pivoted my research towards behavioral health behavioral science, public health, and then brass tacks like drug policy and drug policy research. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you for your thought and leadership. No, thank you. It's like, you know, in a childlike way, you know, thinking back to who I was at Dartmouth, this kid that like was a little bewildered, but knew he had a great opportunity and wanted to do something practical, but philosophical to make a difference. Like the type of work you just described, really, I feel so lucky to be a part of it because it is the intersection of these democratic commitments, which are philosophical, which my philosophy professors would be proud of boiling all the way down through systems to like what a person who cares about making a difference on the street can do to actually like improve a life that day. So it's like, it sounds idealistic, but I, I do think there's a vision there and, and, and being able to work in a space where I can help in some way bring it about. It's like a huge, uh, it's a huge gift. Thanks so much, Brandon. That was Brandon Del Pozo. He spent nearly two decades in the NYPD and served as the chief of police in Burlington, Vermont, where he tackled a number of pressing societal issues, including the opioid addiction crisis. He's currently a postdoctoral public health researcher at Brown University and continues to think deeply on the systems-level reforms necessary to optimize public health and policing in America. Find him at brandondelpozo.com. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on the next Roads Taken and at roadstakenshow.com. Thank you.